You guys can turn to Genesis chapter 31. We'll actually start in chapter 31. We're continuing our study of the life of Jacob this morning. Before we get there, though, if you haven't met my son running around church, he's four years old. His name is Luke. This is him. If you haven't met him, I want to tell you a little bit about Luke in case you do get to meet him in the foyer. Um, Luke, when he was asked a couple weeks ago by my wife, Luke, what do you wish for? Luke responded, I wish to be an engineer so I can invent machines. That was one of the happiest days in his dad's life. My, my heart skipped a beat because like his dad, me, like his grandfather, like his great-grandfather, Luke is growing up an engineer. We were all engineers. It's in his blood. So you can see Luke already growing into an engineer. Here he's, he, he's using his backhoe. Uh, here he is explaining the solar system in case you wanted to understand it. Here he is getting ready to launch his space shuttle. He really loves those boxes. Here he is running his train station. Big fan of trains. Here he is launching his other rocket, little air rocket. Here he and his sister are with their space helmets on getting ready to go to the moon. They have a very creative mom who puts all this stuff together. Luke is growing up to be an engineer. I love it. I love seeing him grow in his ability to engineer. But at four years old, he's just four, uh, at four, he is much better at taking things apart than putting them back together. So he's really good at disassembling things, really good at breaking things. If you go in his room after rest time, the floor will just be littered with the parts of toys from Christmas's past. His, his closets are full of boxes of, of parts of things that he has taken apart. So he can disassemble things really well. He can break things really well. He can't put them back together. But that's okay because when Luke breaks something, he knows where to go for help. Just comes to me. Just comes to his dad and says, Dad, I've broken it. Can you fix this? And I love to do it. I have tools all in the drawer and I pull them out and we work together and we put stuff back together. I love to help him to fix what he can't fix. All he has to do is come ask for help. Well, in all of our lives, there are things that are so broken in us that only God can fix them. Every one of us has places in our lives that are, that are so shattered, that are so broken, that it's beyond our ability to fix them. We have brokenness in our lives that other people caused. Maybe your parents got divorced, or your parents didn't love you, or you were a victim of, of abuse, or abandonment, or neglect, some kind of betrayal in your life. So maybe you have brokenness from what other people did to you, or maybe you have brokenness from what you did, bad decisions that you made, an addiction that you created, a relationship that you destroyed, a sinful choice you made. All of us have brokenness in our lives. All of us have holes in us that we we can't fill. Every human being does. That's, That's absolutely true of every human being on earth. All of us have brokenness in our lives, holes in our lives. And all of the human race, every person on this planet is trying desperately to fill those holes with anything they can get their hands on. And they're trying to fix their brokenness with anything they can find, good stuff. Maybe they can fix it with, with a career or with accomplishments, with accolades, with success, with wealth, with family, with love. Or if they can't fix it, maybe they can at least make the pain go away with alcohol or pills or sex or entertainment. Every person on this planet is trying to fill those unfillable holes in their lives, but to no avail. The more they try, the more they struggle at at everything they can grasp to fill those holes, the more disappointed they are in life. Famous cartoonist named Ralph Barton said, "I, I have had few difficulties 
many friends, great successes. I have gone from wife to wife and from house to house, visited great countries of the world, but I am fed up with inventing devices to fill 24 hours of the day. He wrote that note and then he killed himself. Committed suicide because here's a man who had everything. He was wealthy. He had excess, access to everything that the human race could provide and none of it could fill the hole in his heart. None of it could fix the brokenness in him. The longer you live, the more you see the inadequacy of every human solution to the brokenness inside us. All human beings are broken, broken beyond what we could possibly fix, but there is hope. There is hope because just like my little Luke can come to me and ask his dad to fix what he can't fix, so we can go to our Heavenly Father and ask our Heavenly Father to to fix the unfixable in us, to fill the unfillable holes in our lives, and he will. We'll see him do that this morning in the life of a man named Jacob. We will see him do that and we will learn from Jacob's encounter with God how it is that God comes into your life, how he invades your life to fix what you can't fix. We'll see what it is that we need to do to tap in to the almighty power of God to fix the shattered places in our lives. That's what we'll see him do in the life of Jacob. So let's review just for a moment. What do we know about Jacob? Well, Jacob's parents were Isaac and Rebekah. And Isaac and Rebekah had twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Now, before they were born, God chose Jacob to inherit all the covenant promises that were given to Isaac. But when they were born, Esau beat him out of the womb by one minute. And in the ancient world, that's everything. Because the older son, Esau, had legal right, legal claim to the inheritance. So Esau has the inheritance. Esau also had the affection of his father. Isaac loved Esau, not Jacob. Isaac preferred Esau over Jacob. Made no pretense, didn't try to hide it. And so Jacob grew up his whole life under the shadow of his older brother. Only older by one minute, but that was everything. Esau had the wealth, Esau had the love, Jacob had none of it. That made Jacob empty, it made him broken. And so he tried to fix that by grasping, by scheming, by planning, by manipulating. And and it worked. He made a plan, he deceived, he manipulated, and he got the birthright and the blessing. May not be able to get his dad's love, but by golly, he's going to have the money. So he gets all the wealth. He gets all the inheritance. But then something happens he didn't count on. Esau turns on him. Esau plans to kill him. And so Jacob literally has to run from home with nothing. He he runs from home. That's where we met him last week, suffering the consequences of his sin, running from home. And God meets this prideful, arrogant man, Jacob who had tried to scheme, had tried to grasp things into his life, God meets him and begins to humble him in a first encounter in the wilderness. We said that last week. It happened at a place called Bethel, the stairway to heaven with the angels going up and down. God humbles Jacob by showing him his glory and by showing him his grace. And then by taking him to a city called Haran, a little farther to the north, and putting Jacob under the power of a man who was just like him, his uncle Laban. He was just as deceptive as Jacob was. And so Laban tricked Jacob. Jacob ended up spending a total of 20 years in in basically forced labor to Laban. 20 years ended up with four wives who all hated one another. It was a nightmare at home for Jacob. By the time we ended last week, Jacob was completely broken. Completely broken man. So he's a lot like us. He, He had brokenness in his life. Now he was aware of it. 
He could see all of the brokenness, all the holes in him. The biggest hole of all for Jacob was the fact that his father didn't love him. If you want to understand Jacob's motivation, why does he do what he does? That's it. He's a dad who didn't love him and didn't try to hide it. And so he did everything he could to try to fill that hole left by the lack of his father's love. He tried to fill it with wealth. He struggled with Esau. He schemed, he deceived. To grab this wealth didn't work, didn't fill the hole. So he ran off to to Haran and he sees Rachel, a beautiful woman. And so he tries to fill that hole with sex, with romantic love. And it doesn't work. He ends up again with four wives who all hate each other. His life's a nightmare. Jacob tried, he schemed, he deceived, he manipulated. He did everything he could to grasp things to fill the holes in his life, to fix the brokenness. And it never worked. It was to no avail. So as we meet Jacob this week, he is a man who is utterly broken, who understands his need. Now he sees it. He sees this hole he cannot fill. He is humbled before God, and that means he's ready. He's ready for a second encounter with God. That's what we're going to see this morning. God and Jacob are going to meet once again, a second encounter. In this second encounter, God is not going to break Jacob. That's what he did last time. First time they meet, God breaks him. Second time, God rebuilds him. That's what we'll see this morning as God begins to rebuild Jacob in this second encounter. The second encounter begins with a desperate need. Look with me, actually starting in chapter 31. Turn back to 31 verse 3. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Jacob's been in Haran for 20 years. Now God shows up and says, it's time to go home. It's time to go back to the promised land. Now you would think that'd be really good news, but there's a problem. There's someone waiting for him in the promised land. Turn the page, chapter 32, start in verse 3. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban, And have stayed until now, I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him, and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. So the last thing that happened between Jacob and Esau is Jacob robbed Esau of all the inheritance. And Esau said, I'm going to kill you. Next time I see you, you're dead. Jacob runs away for 20 years. Now he's headed back. And he's headed back right into the lap of Esau. And he's told Esau is coming. And he's got 400 men with him. And 400 men, that's actually the standard number of a militia. In the ancient world. This is an army that Esau is coming with. Jacob doesn't have an army. He just has his wives and kids and a bunch of camels and servants. He, he doesn't have an, an army. Esau does. And, and because of that, Jacob, when he hears about this army coming, he's absolutely terrified. He's trapped. He realizes that now. He's trapped. He can't go back to Haran. He had made a covenant with Laban. If he turns around, Laban's army will wipe him out. But he can't stay where he is because Esau is coming with an army. And so Jacob is absolutely terrified. He assumes that his brother is coming to kill him. That's what he concludes. Esau is coming to kill me. There's nothing I can do about it. All I can do is limit my losses. That's why he divides his company into two. While one company is being slaughtered, maybe the other can run away. Jacob is absolutely terrified. That's the context for the second encounter between Jacob and God. 
that happens in a moment of, of just complete desperate need, of pain and suffering and terror in Jacob's life. And that gives us our first lesson of the morning. You see God most clearly in your moments of greatest need. You see God and you hear God most clearly in your moments of desperate need, when you are in pain, when you are suffering, when you are at the end of your rope, that's when God shows up. That's when you see him. That's when you hear him. As C.S. Lewis put it famously, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's what pain is. That's what suffering is. It's God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's when we hear God clearly is when we're in pain, not when we're in pleasure. That's not how God designed it to be. Back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they had both perfect pleasure and perfect communion with God. But then they sinned. And sin broke that. And now you can't have both. To have perfect communion with God, to see God clearly, to hear God clearly, that comes when you are in pain. That comes when you are suffering trials. That is why James says in James chapter 1, count it all joy, my brethren, when you suffer various trials. James isn't a masochist. He's not saying enjoy the pain. He's saying rejoice because in the midst of pain, that's when you will encounter God. That's when God shows up. That's when you see him clearly. That's when you hear his voice clearly is in the midst of your suffering. That is the hope that we have that no one else on this planet has. When they suffer, it's for naught. When we suffer, we have hope because we know. We don't rejoice in the pain. We don't rejoice in the suffering. We know that in that pain, In that suffering, God shows up. That's where we encounter our God, see him most clearly, hear him most clearly. So Jacob's second encounter with God, it begins with a desperate need. He is in dire straits. So how is he going to respond to the terror he feels, to the desperation he feels? Well, the second thing that happens, Jacob offers up a prayer and a plan. A prayer and a plan. Look with me starting in verse 9. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children." For you said, I will surely prosper you and make you descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. Jacob comes before God humbly. He's broken. He prays for deliverance. Now, it's it's fascinating. I want you to leave your finger here and turn back uh, just a couple pages back to the end of chapter 28, Jacob's last prayer to God. I want you to see how this man has grown up. So the end of chapter 28 is 20 years in the past. When Jacob was leaving the promised land, headed to Haran, look at how Jacob prayed then. Verse 20 of chapter 28. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. Do you notice the difference in the prayer? First prayer, it's conditional. Jacob is in control. Jacob calls the shots. Jacob sets the conditions. He is still in control of his life in chapter 28. But in chapter 32, 20 years later, 20 years of brokenness, of humility, Jacob comes before God with no conditions. He's not demanding anything. He comes before God in in absolute humility. God, I am not worthy. 
All the prosperity in my life, all the good things in my life, you provided them, and now I stand before a man who is going to kill me. Esau is coming. I am desperate for your help. There's nothing I can do. I can't work my way out of this. I can't scheme and manipulate my way out of this. God, I am absolutely dependent upon you to show up. Please save me. So Jacob offers up to God this humble prayer, this contrite prayer. But then having prayed, having expressed his dependence upon God, Jacob doesn't sit around passively. That's the interesting thing. He prays and then he plans. He makes a plan. Look at verse 13. So he, that is Jacob, spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 20 male ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. Big present. He delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on before me, and put a space between droves. He commanded the one in front, saying, When my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going, and to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my lord Esau. And behold, he is also behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third and all those who followed the drove, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face, and perhaps he will accept me. So Jacob prays to God. He spends time in prayer, and then he makes a plan, really a very wise plan. He's going to take all his stuff and and get a lot of it together and give it as a gift to Esau. Why? Because last time he saw Esau, he stole Esau's inheritance. And he stole a ton of wealth from Esau. So this gift, it's, it's restitution. He is giving back to Esau some of what he stole. It's an appropriate thing to do. But he doesn't send it all at once. He divides it up so that as Esau comes to Jacob, he will be literally continually reminded, wave after wave after wave of gifts of how contrite and repentant his brother is. Very wise plan. And when you look at that, when you see Jacob's godly response here, his prayer and his plan, it teaches us a second lesson that in our lives, prayer and planning are not mutually exclusive. I talk to a lot of students in particular who think that they are. You're you're either prayerfully depending upon God for your future or you are making wise plans for the future. But you can't have both. Yes, you can. (laughs) Yes, you can. God wants you to pray and he wants you to plan. You should do both, but you should remember which one is most important. There's only one of these that can guarantee your future. Your planning can't. There is a limit to how far your plans will take you. Jacob knows that. The last little phrase that we read, Jacob says, perhaps my brother will accept me. He doesn't know. His his brilliant plans are no guarantee of success. He knows the only one who can guarantee his future is God. And so the prayer is the most important part. You pray and you plan. You do both. You pray, you plan, and then you submit your plans to God. It's like James talked about in chapter 4. Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So God wants you to make plans for your future. He wants you to use wisdom and intelligence and the consultation of wise advisors. Make a good plan and then submit it to that all-important caveat. If the Lord wills. 
You're saying, God, here's my plan, but I entrust it to you because you hold my future. You're the only one who knows how this works out. You're submitting it to God because you're recognizing that God's greatest blessing might come in your failure. Failure of your plan might be the best thing for you. So you make a plan and then you submit it to God. That's what Jacob does, very godly response. He makes a plan and he submits it to God in prayer. And then God shows up. After Jacob has prayed and planned, God shows up. They have an encounter. And it's, it's surprising how they meet. It's not what you would have expected. That's the next thing we see in our story. Jacob and God meet in a very unexpected way. Look at verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Jacob was left alone. I want you to think about the setting for a moment. It's very similar to the setting of last week's encounter at Bethel. Very similar. Jacob once again is alone when he meets God. Totally alone. All of his servants are gone taking gifts to Esau. All of his family is on the other side of a river called the Jabbok. They're all over there. Jacob wanted to be alone and spend the night in prayer and planning. So he is completely alone. And at this point in his life, he has absolutely no possessions. So he's alone and with nothing because all of his possessions he sent ahead of him to Esau. They are now under Esau's control, either to take them, destroy them, or spare them. Everything that he's possessed, everything that he has worked for in his life, is now under the control of his brother. So he has no one, he has nothing, and once again he's in the middle of the wilderness. He's in a no-name place. It looked like this. It was near the Jabbok River. This is it today. There's still nothing there. It's just barren wasteland. That's where Jacob is, in the middle of the wilderness at night. It's, it's at dark that these two meet. They're going to wrestle until daybreak. So it's, it's when Jacob is alone, when Jacob has nothing, when he's in the middle of nowhere, and when it is dark at night that God shows up. Jacob is completely vulnerable, completely alone, and God shows up. And what is really surprising to us is not that God shows up, it's what God does when he shows up. What's God do? He jumps him. He attacks him. He assaults him. Now, Jacob doesn't yet know that this is God. That's why the account says, amen. Remember, it's, it's dark. It's pitch black night. There's no lights around. This is the ancient world. So Jacob, all he knows is that some guy just jumped him and is wrestling with him. And so Jacob is fighting for his life with this unknown assailant. He doesn't know it's God, but we do. We know where this story's headed. We know this man is God. And that should force us to ask ourselves, wait a minute, what? Why would a God of love show up when Jacob is humble and broken and in his moment of desperate need and attack him? It's not what you expect, right? If somebody is obedient and humble before God, you expect God to comfort them, to to be warm and and comforting and and fix their life. You expect that, a comfortable God. Now, now attacking, maybe that would have been Jacob when he was leaving the promised land. He was real arrogant. Okay, maybe God should have attacked him then, but, but now he's broken. He's humble. He's terrified. He's alone in the dark, desperate for help. God shows up and assaults the guy, attacks the guy, fights with him. Why? Why would a God of love do that? Well, because God wanted Jacob to finally realize for the first time in his whole life, God wanted him to realize, Jacob, you have spent your whole life struggling with people, wrestling with people to get what you thought would fill those unfillable holes in you. 
Fix those broken places in you. So you, you spent your early years wrestling with Esau, and then you spent your latter years wrestling with Laban to get from them what you thought would fill the holes in your heart and fix the brokenness in your life. And Jacob, you got to realize, buddy, it was only ever me who could fill you and fix you. It was only ever me you should have been wrestling with. It was only me you should have been pursuing because no person can fix you. No person on this planet can fill the gaping holes in your life. Only I can do that. God shows up to wrestle Jacob because he wants Jacob to understand that he spent his whole life wrestling the wrong people. People who could never fill his holes, people who could never fix what was broken in his life. Only God could do that. Only one person could fill the holes in Jacob's life. So now it was time for him to have it out with the one right person. And there's a lesson in that for us. Third lesson this morning. Too many of us spend our lives, just like Jacob, wrestling with the wrong people. We spend our lives struggling and competing and and manipulating to get from other people what we think will fill the holes in our lives and fix the broken places in us. That will never work. There is no person on earth, there is no thing on earth that can ever fix the brokenness in your soul. There's only one person who could, and it's God. He is the only person you should be wrestling with. He is the only person you should be pursuing. To wrestle anyone else is to waste your time. As Blaise Pascal put it, there is a God-shaped vacuum in every human's heart that cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God through his son, Jesus Christ. Why is our world full of broken, sad, miserable, depressed people? Because they spend their lives trying to fill a God-shaped hole with human things. It's never going to work. It's never going to fit. It's never going to fill them. It's not possible for them to find rest in the things of this world. As Augustine put it, you, God, have made us restless until we find our rest in you. It is only God who can fill the gaping holes in your life. It's only God who can fix the shattered places in you. No human being can do that. No spouse, no sibling, no child, no friend can fill the holes in you, can fix what's broken in you. There's only one who can, only one, and it's God. If you want to fill the gaping holes in your life and fix the brokenness in you, stop wasting your time wrestling with other people. Go to the only person who can fix you, God himself. So Jacob is now beginning to see. He's been wrestling with the wrong people his entire life. It's time to wrestle with the only person who matters, with God And so they begin to wrestle. God begins to work in Jacob through this wrestling match. God is going to begin to fix what was unfixable to fill what was unfillable. That's what God is going to do next. He is going to fix Jacob, but not how you would expect. He's going to fix Jacob with a debilitating touch. That's where the story goes next. Look with me, verse 25. When he, that is God, saw that he had not prevailed against him, that is Jacob, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled him. Think about how this wrestling match goes. All through the night, things seem to be going well for Jacob. He's able to, to resist this guy, to hold him at bay 
all night long. That's because Jacob was really strong. We know that because when he first saw Rachel and he was like head over heels for her, he went and rolled this huge stone away from a well that no one else could do. So the guy has a lot of physical strength. And throughout life, he had been able to rely on that physical strength to deliver him. He could protect himself. And so it looks like, once again, Jacob's physical strength is going to deliver him from danger. But then something happens that he didn't expect. This man who he's locked in battle with, he just reaches out a finger and touches his hip and dislocates it. A couple things to know about that kind of injury, this dislocation injury. First of all, it's a career-ending injury. It's game over for Jacob when this happens. Because when you're wrestling, think about it. When you're wrestling, the, the key to winning a wrestling match is knowing how to throw your weight around. That's how you win, by throwing your weight around. And that takes hips. You've got to have hips to throw your weight around. So you can actually technically wrestle with only one hand, but you can't wrestle with only one hip. It's impossible. So this isn't just a match-ending injury. This is a career-ending injury. Actually, Jacob limped for the rest of his life. He had a severe limp. Jacob was never able to defend himself physically again. He couldn't fight back against anyone for the rest of his life. So it's a career-ending injury. And second thing to notice, it's a supernatural injury. Your, your hip socket, dislocating your hip, that is incredibly hard to do. I talked to a doctor this week about how this would work. Your hip joint is actually the strongest joint in your body. The, the ball of your leg is so far down in the socket and surrounded by such tough connective tissue that it takes an incredible amount of force to dislocate a hip. That's why you never hear about it happening. You hear about lots of people dislocating a shoulder, but not a hip. It takes an incredible amount of force, and yet all this man does is just touch him. Just lay a finger on him and bam. That's when Jacob finally realizes what we've known all along, that this is no man. This is God. This is when Jacob realizes, this is God I have been wrestling with. And that realization changes everything instantly. Look with me, verse 26. Then he, that is God, said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he, that is Jacob, said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Instantaneously, Jacob stops fighting and starts clinging. Totally different response. So, so first, he spent the whole night fighting off this other man, pushing him away. Now he's clinging desperately. Why? Why the sudden change? Because as soon as Jacob realizes this is God and my hip is dislocated, Jacob puts two and two together and remembers what's going to happen the next day. Esau is showing up with 400 men. And if it would have been hard for Jacob to defend himself with two good hips, now he's crippled. Now there is no hope. He is toast when the sun rises. He knows that the only possible way for victory is to hold on to the one man who can save him, God himself. So Jacob's not letting go until God blesses him. By bless, what Jacob's saying is save me. Give me victory tomorrow. Keep me alive when I see Esau. Jacob turns to God and clings to him and pleads for help. And that shows us the next lesson this morning that God has for us. When life is difficult, when life is hard, when you want God to come into your life and fix the unfixable, fill the unfillable holes in you, the secret is you've got to cling to God and plead for help. That's actually the secret of life. You want to know how to fix the unfixable parts of you? You cling to God and you plead for help and you hold on until he fixes you. And it may take a night or it may take a month, or it may take a year, or it may take decades. You just keep holding on. 
You keep pleading with him for his help. That's the secret of life. If you want God to do amazing, miraculous things in your life, you must cling to him and plead with him for help. That's what you do over and over again, every day. Cling to God, plead with him for help. There have been long periods of my life where I have been suffering, when my life has not been working well, where all I could do in the morning is get up and cling to God and plead for help. That's the secret of a life that God honors, that God blesses. You cling to God, you hold on for dear life, and you plead with him for help. That's what Jacob does. He clings to God and pleads with him for help, and God answers. God gives Jacob the help that he has been desperately seeking. That's the final thing that God does. God shows up in Jacob's life and blesses him with a new name that makes him a new man. A new name that makes him a new man. This is actually my favorite part of Jacob's life. It's currently my favorite moment in the whole book of Genesis. If you look with me, starting in verse 27. So he, that is God, said to him, that is Jacob, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. God is going to bless Jacob by giving him a new name. But first, he needs to know Jacob's current name. And you read that and you ask, why would God ask him to say his name? Because it's God. Like, he knows all things. So why does he need Jacob to say what his name is? Well, because Jacob, the name Jacob, it means something. What did Jacob mean? What's that name mean? It means heel grabber, literally, usurper. The kind of guy who, who grasps and deceives and manipulates to get what he wants in life. God knows his name. God wants him to admit it. He wants him to confess, yeah, I'm Jacob. That's who I've been my whole life, a heel grabber, a schemer, a deceiver, a manipulator who did whatever it took to get what I wanted. God is saying, Jacob, it's time to own that. It's time to confess that, admit it. And Jacob says, yes, I am Jacob. I am the heel grabber. I am the manipulator. That is my sin. That's what I've done wrong. As soon as Jacob confesses, then God blesses him with a new name. From now on, you will be called. That's standard Hebrew for a spiritual transformation. God is changing him by giving him this new name. No longer will you be Jacob, the heel grabber, the usurper. Now you will be Israel. It's another name that means something. Israel in Hebrew, it means that God fights for me. That God rules over my struggles, over my pain. What God wants Jacob to understand is, Jacob, you spent your whole life fighting your own battles in your own strength, and it never worked. Now it's time for a change. You are no longer Jacob, the one who fights for himself. You are now Israel, the one for whom God fights. In other words, Jacob, yeah, you're going to see Esau tomorrow, but when you show up, I'm going to be there. I've got your back. I will fight your battles for you. God transforms this man by giving him a new name. And the reason that I so love this story, why it's my favorite moment in the book of Genesis, is because it shows us this thing that God does all the way through the Bible that maybe you never thought about before. Maybe you never noticed the importance of it. You have a God who throughout the Bible is in the business of renaming broken people. He does it all the way through the Bible. So you get this guy named Simon in the Gospels, and he is arrogant, and he is brash, and he is foolish. And Jesus shows up in his life, and what does he do? He renames him to be Peter, the rock. That's who he was from then on. And you meet this guy named Saul in the book of Acts, and what does he do? He goes and murders Christians and persecutes them. And then Jesus shows up in his life, and what does he do? He renames him. Now you are Paul 
apostle to the Gentiles. You have a God who loves to show up in the lives of broken people and give them a new name. A new name that is full of new possibilities, a new destiny, a new future. And that leads us to the fifth lesson this morning. Who you were in the past does not define who you will be in the future because you have a God who can give you a new name. Whoever you were in the past, whatever names were true of you in the past, they do not define you in the future because you have a God who is big enough to give you a new name, a new future full of new opportunities and new possibilities. Many of you have names in your past that you would really like to leave behind. Names like addict and anorexic and sinner and abandoned and and fool and failure. Names that you call yourself, names that other people call you, names that you want to leave behind. God wants you to understand those names do not need to define you ever again. Now, you may struggle with those sins. You may struggle with those wounds for the rest of your life, but they don't have to define you because you have a God who is big enough to give you a new name and a new future. So God shows up in Jacob's life and gives him a new name that spells out a new future. And that leads us to ask ourselves, so how do we get this new name from God? I I want that. How do I get a new name from God and leave my past behind? That's the final lesson God has for us this morning. It's a surprising lesson. It's not what you would expect. To receive your new name, you must meet God in his weakness. Really unusual. You must meet God in his weakness. I want you to look back at verse 25. Verse 25 should surprise you a little bit. Because you got Jacob, who's a man, like you and me, and, and who is he fighting? God, omnipotent, almighty creator. They fight, and what does it say? It says literally that that God cannot overpower Jacob. What in the world's going on? How do you do your theology with that? How do you fit that in? What is God doing? Why would the Almighty Creator allow Jacob, a man, to wrestle him to a draw? Here's what's going on. I like to play with my kids. Luke and Grace, they're both four years old. I like to wrestle with them. We have a great time together, but I'm much bigger than them and much stronger than them. So that I know if, if I wrestle with them and I use all my strength and all my weight, I'll crush them. I, I literally could kill them. And so what do I do? I lay down on the floor on my back. I take all the weight off, and, and so I can't injure them now. Now I wrestle with just my hands. I limit myself. And, and when I limit myself, when I lay on my back and just use my hands, the reality is, is my kids can actually hurt me. My kids are getting bigger, and if one sits on my face and one sits on my hands, it hurts a lot. It really hurts quite a lot when they do that. They love to do that. But I I want to wrestle with them. I want to have that time with them. And so here's the key. Because I love them, I take all the risk, and I suffer all the pain. And that's what God does for us. Because he loves us, he takes all the risk, and he suffers all the pain. He limits us so that he can do life with us, and that's most clearly expressed in the cross. When God the Son, Jesus Christ, when he came to earth, he did not come in power, he did not come in strength, he did not come in glory. If he would have come in glory, everyone would have died, because the glory of God destroys sinful human beings. If he would have come in glory, he would have crushed us, and so instead he came in weakness, Jesus came and limited himself, the son of God, the creator, the almighty. He came in humility as the son of a carpenter, a poor man. 
a weak man, a fragile man who then took our sins upon himself and died a painful, excruciating human death on the cross for us. That's why we sang this morning, hallelujah for the cross, praise God for the cross, because the cross is the moment when God limited himself, when God became weak, when God took all the risk and suffered all the pain so that he could give you a new name. That's what the cross is about. That's where you meet God in his weakness and receive your new name. Through faith in Jesus, you become a new person. Here's how John puts it, John chapter one. But as many as received him, that is Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. In the past, you had the name sinner, child of wrath unforgiven, unloved. That was your name in the past, but then Jesus died for you and through faith in him, you now have a new name, the best name of all, child of God. Child of God who is forgiven, who is sanctified, who is beloved, who is saint. That's the new name that God has given you, not because you worked for it, not because you earned it, but because Jesus made it possible for you. Jesus became weak so that you could receive a new name with a new future. A new name that makes you a new person, a totally new man, a totally new woman, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We all have this brokenness and these holes in our lives, but the good news is that God can fix all of that. He can fix all of that because he is powerful enough to make you a new person, a new man or a new woman with a new name and a new future. And you can have all of that. You can have a new name and a new future if you will simply believe, if you will simply say to God, yes, I want that. I'm going to stop trying to earn your love. I'm going to stop trying to work for it. I'm just going to receive my new name, my new future as a free gift that Jesus made possible by becoming weak. He took all the risk. He suffered all the pain so you could be forgiven, have eternal life, and have a new name. That's the great news of the gospel. That's why we celebrate the cross. The most surprising thing of all Not that God is powerful, not that God came to earth, but that God limited himself and became weak. He became killable. He became breakable for you. That was the only way so that you could receive a new name and a new future and become his new creation. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we give thanks. We praise you that you are a God who is all-powerful. You are mighty You know all things, you see all things, you can do all things. You are our creator and our Lord, King of kings. And yet in grace, you sent your son in humility. And we praise you and thank you, Jesus, that that when you came for us, you did not come in all your glory. That would have killed us, that would have destroyed us. Instead, you came in weakness. You limited yourself, you made yourself breakable and killable so that you could suffer all the pain and take all the risk so that we could be forgiven. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you that you died for our sins and rose from the dead so that we could set our past behind and receive a new name with a new future. We thank you that we do not have to be defined by our failures, by our tragedies, by our struggles in the past. We thank you that now we can be called your children 
Your son, your daughter, beloved, justified, forgiven, saved, saint. We thank you that you are a God who is in the business of giving broken people a new name. Thank you that you've given us a new name through the weakness and death of your son. We pray for any person in this room who has not yet received that new name. Please, Lord, help them to believe. It's not something they have to earn. You don't work for it. You don't reform your life to get a new name. It's a gift. Help them to receive it, Lord, from you. Help them to believe that Jesus died for their sins so they could receive a new name of forgiven. Lord, we pray for all of us who have received that new name. We pray that we would live in it. We pray that we would live out our new identity in Christ, that we would not let our actions and our choices be defined by our brokenness, by our struggles, by our failures in the past. That instead, we would let our choices, our decisions, each day of our lives be defined by who we are now in Christ. That we would live as new creations, as new men, as new women, as children of God, forgiven and beloved. We thank you, Lord God, that you became weak so that we could be saved. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who took all the risk and suffered all the pain. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys.